Another episode of Romans. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Jonathan Chan, and before we embark on Chapter Nine of Romans, let's begin with a video clip, and we'll be right back. Master, Master,、mm-hmm. I, I have it's、uh, it's very bad news. Ah,、uh, Shifu, <laughs> there is just news. There is no good or bad. Master, your vision, your vision was right. Tai Lung has broken out of prison. He's on his way. That is bad news. If you do not believe that the Dragon Warrior can stop him, the panda, Master, that panda is not the Dragon Warrior. He wasn't even meant to be here. It was an accident. There are no accidents. <sighs> yes, I know. You've said that already. Twice. Well, that was no accident either. Thrice. My old friend, the panda will never fulfill his destiny, nor you yours, until you let go of the. There are no accidents, or you could say there are no mistakes. Does God make any mistakes or any accidents? Do some things happen out of happenstance, and God just didn't know about it? Or maybe he wasn't aware of the residual effects of his actions. Romans nine is an elaboration of Romans three, where Paul addressed the question with regards to ethnic Jews. What about them? Did God make a mistake in choosing the ethnic Jews as his chosen people? How did he keep his promise, even though ethnic Israel kept on breaking theirs, i.e., the promise that he will use Israel to be the light to the nations and spread the word about who God is? Today, the point I would like to make is simple and probably obvious to many of us Christians. Yet sometimes it just sneaks up on us and makes us wonder if it's really true. When it comes to God, there are no mistakes and no accidents. We know it's true. So why is it sometimes rearing its ugly heads to make us doubt? Let's begin with chapter nine, verse one. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature is concerned, and He is God. The one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So, what about ethnic Israel? This chapter is all about them. If you recall, Romans was written to address the dispute between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in a church in Rome. So, if this letter was being spoken aloud in front of the church, you can imagine. 
that the speaker is now speaking to the Jewish Christians and also the Jews among them. Quite possibly also the intent is to have the Gentile Christians listening in who are also there with them. Paul, being a Jew, an ethnic Jew, who loves his ethnic fellow Jews very much, responds with emotional heartache. Why would he do that? Why would he suddenly, out of the blue, right after chapter 8, which was a glorious chapter of worship, of giving praise to God, of realizing how the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right after that chapter, whammo, we get chapter 9, where Paul just goes into a depression. Why did he do that? Well, God chose Israel to be his chosen people. What did that mean? God gave them the law, communed with them. They received his promises and the privileges to be in his presence. Not only that, God also entrusted them with a very privileged role. Antirite would say they were called to be a light of the world, the people through whom God would speak his word of promise and new creation to all nations. Yet they failed. How did they fail? They decided to take advantage of the privileges, but not fulfill the responsibilities as Paul discussed, i.e. trust and obey God. Throughout the Old Testament, because of ethnic Israel's constant failings to trust and obey God and fulfill their God-given role, they were in constant exile under the control of other nations, such as the Babylonians, Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans till Paul's time. And many of them were desperately waiting for God's Messiah to deliver them from exile. Hence, throughout the Old Testament, we have the prophets trying to tell them to turn back to God. Also, in our study of the Gospels, most recently Luke, we also came across different groups of ethnic Jews figuring out if they had the right way to bring about the Messiah within their clique. Yet no matter how much these groups tried, Pharisees, Sadducees, temple priests, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls in the desert, zealots, they continued to fall short. They continued to sin, they continued to reject God, and they're still in exile and under the control of Rome, again, right up until Paul's time. They're like the fish on dry land trying to figure out how to get back into the ocean, but can't. Yet because the ocean is in front of them, they are constantly reminded of their mistakes and shortcomings. So why is Paul filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief to the point that he wished his sacrifice could save them? It's because many of his ethnic Jewish countrymen did not believe, will not believe, and still does not believe that Jesus is their God-given Messiah. To right the wrongs and provide a way for them to get back into the ocean. They didn't believe that Jesus fulfilled the status of God's chosen people. And that when you believe in Jesus, you shall be called God's chosen. They didn't believe that. It's like seeing your beloved friends taking the wrong turn, and you know that they're heading over a cliff. Yet no matter how much you plead and reason with them, they're still going that direction, completely ignoring you, because they believe they're right. In this chapter, Paul is telling the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians who are listening that God did not make a mistake when he made the promise originally to the ethnic Israelites. 
regardless of Israel's failures. He did not make an error. He did not make a mistake in making his promise to the Israelites. What he did, though, was fulfilled his promise through Israel. He still fulfilled his promise through ethnic Israel of using them to be a light to the nations, a light to the world, drawing people to know God and who God is. And he also fulfilled his promise through Israel in Jesus. How did he do that? Let's move on. Verse 6. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? That's the question. No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God promised I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son will, was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. Rachel was told, sorry, my bad. Rebecca was told, your older son will serve your younger. In the words of the scriptures, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. All right. Paul is recapping the early stories in Genesis. And fortunately for us, we just finished a series on Genesis. So these stories should still be fresh in our minds. God had always chosen specific people to carry on his purpose of redeeming the world right from the beginning, starting with God choosing Abraham out of the entire populated world. He chose Abraham before Abraham did anything to deserve it. So out of the entire humanity, God singled out Abraham. Then out of Abraham's many children, God singled out Isaac. Then out of Isaac's many children, he singled out Jacob over Esau and so on, and so on, and so on. So you notice that though God's choosing of Israel initially, God didn't stop there. He chose and chose and chose, singling out people within Israel to carry on his purpose. Therefore, in Paul's logic, though majority of ethnic Israel failed miserably in fulfilling their role and trusting and obeying God, God still remained faithful to his promise in using Israel by continually to choose within Israel who will carry on his purpose. He continued to choose and choose and choose till the choice ended up with one true Israelite, Jesus, who represented not only Israel, but all of God's chosen people. In other words, not all of ethnic Jews are God's chosen people. Say what? See, Paul originally thought so too before he met Jesus. But after he encountered Jesus, after he took a little bit of a long, not a little, a long hiatus to revisit the stories in the Torah, he realized that God actually, throughout history, had been continuously choosing 
who will be his chosen people. It didn't just stop at merely ethnic Jews. So regardless how unfaithful the ethnic nation of Israelites are, not all the entire nation are God's chosen people. In fact, the last chosen person whom God chose was just one person, Jesus, one man, not even a family like Abraham, not even a large family like Jacob, just one man. Paul continues, Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So, it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has a right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Paul assumes here a likely question from his audience. If the reason for God to continue choosing and choosing and choosing until finally he chose Jesus, does this mean that God has been making mistakes or that he didn't foresee the residual effects of his choosings? Because it seems like Israel keeps on disobeying and failing. Did he make a mistake in making his promises to them uh, or keeping his promises to them? Is God making a mistake? Or is God unfair? In other words, does he show favoritism? Does he show favoritism only to these certain Jews among the Jews? Maybe he really didn't know what he was doing. That's another one. Like, does God make mistakes? Paul says, no. God makes no mistakes. And he responds to this question with quotes from the Old Testament, starting with a passage in Exodus right after Israel, who rebelled against God when they worshipped a golden calf. Clearly, Israel sinned and deserved to be tossed aside. Come on, think about it this way. Here's God on Mount Sinai, meeting with Moses. The entire 12 nations, 12 tribes of Israel, clearly see lightning bolts and you know hailstorms and clouds and the glory of God in front of them. And then they decide to make a golden calf to worship it. So, clearly... Just by that action, Israel deserves to go. God didn't need, God was not obligated to show mercy to them. He could have just went and chose somebody else. But no, he kept his promise with Israel. Is that a mistake? Was that a mistake to keep his promise with this rebellious nation? We, Paul says, no, he didn't make a mistake. God chose to continue to use Israel for his purpose, and here's how he did it. For example, Paul continues, God 
chooses a pagan like Pharaoh to reveal his power and authority to Israel and to the world. Not only using the 10 plagues to reveal to the world how powerful he was, but he also used the 10 plagues and his judgment on Pharaoh to reveal to Israel how powerful he was and how dependent they were to God through Pharaoh's oppression upon them to teach them that four nations are not folks that they should be chummy chummy with. Therefore, God can choose anyone to fulfill his purposes. He chooses some to show the world what it means to trust and obey God, like those whom God has chosen within Israel. And he chooses some like Pharaoh and disobedient Israelites to show the world what it means to not trust and obey God, but go against God. Think about it this way. Here's another example that Paul goes on to say. Look at the ethnic Israelites who sinned and broke their promise with God. They kept disobeying God and rebelled against God. But God still kept his promise with Israel. Still kept his promise of using Israel to be the light of the nations and to dis display his power and uh, authority over the world to other nations. How did he do that with a disobedient Israel? Well, throughout the Old Testament, when Israel was disobedient to God or stood up against God or rebelled against God, what happened to them? They, are, they were exiled. They were under the slavery of foreign nations. They were punished. They were judged. Well, if I was in that time and I was an outsider looking at Israel and I see what happens when you disobey God, and I see the consequences, well, to a foreigner, an outsider looking in, you would say, gosh, that's not a God that I would like to piss off. I will not want to piss off this God. In fact, I would trust and obey this God because, wow, he is freakishly powerful and no nation, no other God can go against this God. And so I'm convinced. See what I mean? In light of all of Israel's disobedience, in light of their rebellion, in light of their sin, God made no mistake of keeping his promise with Israel. No, instead, we realized, and Paul realized, that God actually continued to fulfill his promise with Israel by using Israel as an example of what it means to not trust and obey God, to experience the judgments, the wrath, the uh, exiles, the persecutions of other nations, from other nations, revealing to the rest of the world what it means when you disobey and not trust God. That's how God used, kept his promise and used Israel for it to continue his purpose. Whether Israel liked it or not, well, we'll get into that. But okay, you and I are probably going to ask Paul another question. Does God choose who is going to be faithful to him and who will not be? It almost like that Paul is like heading to that direction of saying, well, you know what? We have no choice. We don't have, we don't have a free will. We are just doing what God created us to do. If God created me to be unfaithful, I'll remain, I'll be unfaithful. If God created me to be faithful, I'll be faithful. Is that what Paul meant? Paul says, no. And he uses two clay passages found in Isaiah 29 and 45 to make his point. It goes like this. In chapter 29 of Isaiah, it goes like this. How foolish can you be? 
He is the potter and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say the one who made it, he didn't make me? Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? Chapter 45. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop! You're doing it wrong! Does the pot exclaim, How clumsy can you be? In these two clay passages, the clay is definitely not some lump of clay. This clay actually has a mind of its own and has a will of its own and can prevent God or just try to prevent God from molding it, right? You get that from those two passages? Because Isaiah, at that time when he was writing or was prophesying to Israel, Israel was rebelling against God. Their behavior was like the lump of clay chosen by God to, for a purpose, whether it be in Paul's imagery to be some decorative ornament or some jar that to carry garbage, whatever. They, God chose them for a specific role. But this clay is not some clay that is passive and just brainless. No, this clay had a mind of its own. And Israel, like the lump of clay, is telling God, no, I don't agree with how you chose me. I'm going to just go off and do what I want to do. Not allowing God to mold them to be his chosen people. They don't want to trust and obey God. They don't want to trust and obey his moldings, so to speak. In other words, it's not that Israel, uh, ethnic Israel or Pharaoh or even the entire humanity are just these passive, brainless, no free will lumps of clay um, being created for being created to be unfaithful. No, these goddess actually have made it, have chosen them to be a certain thing. Yet these, yet Israel's rebellion was their decision against the potter's hands. Paul is saying that Israel is basically rebelling against God's potter's hands. They didn't want God to mold them, but rather they preferred to tell God what they wanted to be. But even if they rebelled, God still kept his promise by using the disobedience for his purpose. So God made no mistakes. He didn't make a mistake in making a promise with Abraham to this ethnic Israel. He kept his promises. He still chose Israel. He still chose Israel and desired to mold them to fulfill their role. But Israel rejected the moldings. And yet in their rejection, God still fulfilled his promise through them. And now you and I are chosen in Jesus to be molded by God. What does that mean? Why would he do that anyway? Why would he choose now choose the non-Jews and, and certain Jews to be his children? Well, Paul goes on with verse 25. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant can, will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. 
And Isaac said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. God keeps his promises. For the Gentiles, God promised that they will be his people through the trust and obedience of the true Israelite who is now Jesus. When we have Pastuo in Jesus, we are God's chosen people. Recall that we were not God's chosen people. And Paul will elaborate this in Romans 11, I believe Romans 10 and 11, which is coming up. He, Paul says, sorry, Paul says to the Gentiles that we were not God's people because we were, we were just like all of humanity. We rebelled against God, we sinned against God, and therefore we are not God's chosen people. However, through the prophets, he promised that the Gentiles will be his people, that those who were not his people begin to begin with will be his people through a true Israelite, and that is through Jesus. So whoever has pursued in Jesus will be God's chosen. Why? Because God fulfills his promises. God makes no mistakes when he makes these promises. It was not a mistake to make that promise because he fulfilled it. Now for the Jews... Because of their rebellion throughout their history, God declared them as not his people. Yet he too again made a promise through the prophets that within the Jewish nation, within ethnic Israel, the ethnic Jews, they will be called, those people will be called, those ethnic Jews will be called his chosen people through the pastoral in Jesus as well. Because God promised it. So therefore, Paul is telling us, telling the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, no, God does not make a mistake. God, when, he, God, when God made a promise to Abraham, it was not a mistake because he fulfilled it through Jesus. All right. Whew. That was a little complicated. And mind you, when I was preparing this sermon, it was complicated for me. So hopefully you were able to glean any wisdom or learn something from this and found it helpful. Yet the ultimate question for all sermons though is, what about us today in the 21st century? How are we to apply this in our lives as Christians? Well, as I was reflecting and ruminating and praying over this as I was preparing this sermon, I had the same question for myself. How does this impact me? or inform me as a Christian and how I should live? Well, truth is, I am God's chosen person. I am one of God's chosen people. I am God's child, just like Israel long ago. Because I am, because of my pastoral in Jesus, I am a chosen, I'm one of the chosen people of God, God has made a promise to me. I inherited, basically, the promise to me. I inherited God's promise to Israel, to me. And what is that promise? Again, is to be the light to the nations, to draw people in, to usher people to the presence of God, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now, what have I learned? I've also learned through this, especially with Pharaoh and the disobedient Israelites, that God will always 
keep his promise. That he made no mistake when he made that promise with me. That regardless whether I sinned or I rebelled against God or I was unfaithful to God, there will be times and days where I will be unfaithful to God or I'll slip up or I will sin. God will always keep his promise of using me to be the light to the nations, using me to usher people in God's presence, whether I like it or not. Here's what I mean. If you recall when I mentioned about Pharaoh's example and the disobedient Israelites, where the four nations, like when you're looking outside and in, when you see Pharaoh experiencing the 10 plagues, the Israelites being judged and experiencing the wrath of God for disobeying God. When I see that, if I was there outside looking in, I would go to myself, they're like, this God means business and he's freakishly powerful. So maybe it's a good idea to trust and obey him. Well, how about myself then? What happens if I was that disobedient Israelite? Through my disobedience, through my rejection of God, whenever I, like, uh, I just says, I'd say to God, okay, you know what? God, I don't like how you mold me right now. I'm taking off. Will he keep his promise? Yes, he will. But it may not be the way I like it. See, the Israelites, they experienced judgment and exile. That's not what they wanted. But because of their disobedience, God kept his promise, yet not the way they liked it. Pharaoh, same thing. Of course he wouldn't want the 10 plagues on him. But because of his rejection, his rebellion, his he thinking that he's a more powerful God than God himself, that's what he got. And through Pharaoh, gosh, the entire earth knew about it and realized, okay, this God is greater than his gods, Pharaoh's God. So uh, Pharaoh, <laughs> the jokes was on you. You see what I mean? So if I were in the, that shoes and say, God, I don't want you to mold me anymore. I'm out of here. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to remain faithful to you. I will keep my bad habits. I will do this and that and do what I please. Will God still fulfill his promise? Will God still use me to reveal himself to everyone else, to my family, my friends, my coworkers and colleagues? Yes, he will, but it may not be what we want. We may not like it. God will always fulfill his promise. He made no mistake when he made that promise with us. He made no mistake to his chosen people that he will use us to reveal the world, who he is, what he's done through Jesus. He will do it. And he will remain faithful to his promise, whether we like it or not. That's the takeaway that I had when I was studying through Romans chapter 9 from 1 to 29, that God makes no mistakes when he made that promise to us and he will always keep his promises. Amen. Amen.